How many of you have ever seen a painting of Jesus and the children? Raise your hand. Okay. Maybe you were reading a children's book to a child, a book of Bible stories, or just a book of children's stories, and there was an image of Jesus with the children, and you were just musing about that image. It's not surprising that the image appears so many times in artwork because both Matthew, Mark, and also Luke tell the same story that says that Jesus loves the little children. Let the children come to me, says Jesus, in all of these stories. Such a sweet, beautiful image. I don't know about the church that you grew up in, or even if you grew up in a church, but in the church I grew up in, this painting that hung in the children's wing was of a blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus. He was sitting with perfectly coiffed children all around him. No one was crying or fussing. They all looked delighted to be with him, no parents in sight. And behind was this rolling green grass with some sunlight streaming in, Jesus perfectly there with the children. I looked on the internet this week to see if I could find that particular painting because I assumed that if I grew up with a painting like that, there was one, maybe the same one, in the church you grew up in, but a quick search on the internet of paintings of Jesus and the children yields almost five million results. <laughs> One of the things all the paintings have in common is that the children are happy and sweet and gentle. Not once did I see one of those paintings with children's backpacks unzipped and strewn all over the floor with candy wrappers and frisbees and gum wrappers everywhere. Not once did I find one of those paintings where the children were in dirty diapers with runny noses. No, in these paintings, the children were innocent and sweet and all clean. And there were no parents around, only occasionally a mother who was carrying an infant to hand over to Jesus. And by itself, this image seems rather flat and one-dimensional. Jesus loves the children. Awesome, isn't it? But don't most people find them precious? Is there more to this story that all three of the Gospels tell us about? If an artist wanted to paint the story the way that Luke tells it, the artist would include some adult men in the picture holding up their arms with their hands out saying, stop, no more entrance past here. They would be quickly setting up those orange and white barricades, those little sawhorses to keep people back, push the crowds away. Maybe Jesus' disciples would appear in black garments as if they were Jesus' bodyguards. After all, this man came to bring salvation to the world, to confront injustice, to tell us all what God wants us to do with our lives. Don't pester him, the disciples said. He's got masses to feed. He's got lepers to heal. No time for trivial things of children. If the artist were to pan left and broaden the scene so that we would know what was happening just before this idyllic scene of Jesus with the children, we would find a picture of a faithful Pharisee and a rogue tax collector marching up to the temple to say their prayers. 
the faithful Pharisee prays, thank God I'm not like that tax collector, but instead I give a tenth of my fortune to the church and I volunteer every week at Micah Ministry to serve the hungry. And the tax collector comes in to bow his head in shame and says, oh God, forgive me for being such a terrible, unworthy person. In this scene, just before the scene of Jesus with the children, the Pharisee looks foolish and fake, and the tax collector looks humble and sincere. And this story of the tax collector and the Pharisee concludes by saying, all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. And then in the very next scene, it is the disciples who look foolish and the children who look sincere. Luke invites us to see that the disciples are behaving with the same arrogance and self-assurance as the Pharisee had been doing. The Pharisee diminishes the despised tax collector. The disciples dismiss the bothersome children. Both the Pharisee and the disciples see we're in God's inner circle. We've been called by God to listen, learn, and serve. And they are aghast when Jesus pauses to play with children, aghast when God looks with favor upon the lowly tax collector, the one who grows rich while cheating those who are poor. I was at my grandson's house a few weeks ago. He just turned four, and he was proudly telling me that his other grandmother would be coming to his preschool class to give a lesson on health because she is a nurse. Well, I don't like being one-upped as a grandmother. I said, Lincoln, do you know who else is a nurse? And he said, no. And I said, well, your Aunt Carly is also a nurse. She worked at a hospital, took care of the sick. Well, are you a nurse? He said. No, Lincoln, I'm a minister. He looked over at his grandfather and he said, well, what is Poppy? I said, Poppy is a psychologist. And he marched away from me and he said, well, I am just a kid. <laughs> we define ourselves, we adults, right, by what we do. But kids are just kids, small, humble, innocent, and unpretentious. Small children are without merit or achievement. But we, like those first disciples of Jesus, take seriously our call to do great deeds of justice and to perform miracles in this world. We sign up to go on mission trips to help the poor. We build a tiny house for the homeless veterans here in Kansas City. We participate in the circles of care to bring communion to those who are shut in and can't come to this feast here in the sanctuary. It is so easy when we begin to participate in the community of faith to begin thinking that all of this is earning us a place in God's inner circle, in God's realm. You know, in Mark and in Matthew, Jesus welcomes children, but in Luke, he welcomes infants. And you know, infants cannot do a darn thing for themselves. They cannot hold a fort to feed themselves. They cannot roll over in bed. They cannot tell you what is on their mind. They can only weep. They cannot take care of their own toileting needs. They are completely and totally dependent on someone else. And so when we hear this story of Jesus, and Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God 
as a little child will never receive it, then we pause to realize there is something else about this Christian life that is not about our doing. It is about our receiving. We need to become as dependent on God as is an infant to her mother. We need to abandon pretense and trust God with our very lives. When Dave and I were just dating, he and his two kids went with me one summer out to Estes Park, Colorado to Christian community camp. Kyle was only 10 that summer and had never seen mountains. We hiked the first day there and Kyle was completely stunned. He was a shy and quiet kid then and so we didn't realize that he was just completely mesmerized by those 14,000 foot peaks, some still covered in snow in August. Kyle was a bright kid, excelling in math and science, and was always kind of noodling on some thought, and so we didn't realize how quiet he had become until the end of the day when he turned and looked at us and said, these mountains, were they made by God or are they man-made? I was so envious that Kyle was having this aha moment. For I had been looking at the mountains all day as a result of the shift of the tectonic plates, but Kyle was learning that something vast and wonderful and powerful like a mountain was a gift from God. And it humbled me to remember that the most beautiful, awe-inspiring things in this life are never man-made, but only received from a miraculous, Creator. So how do we get there? How do we develop that kind of awe and wonder and humility? How do we come to place our own radical trust in God rather than our own ability to do stuff? We are a congregation full of overachievers. We are highly educated and highly motivated. Many of you are working full-time raising families, volunteering in the community, and many of you who are retired spend your days helping with grandchildren, tutoring at Hartman Elementary, serving on various civic boards, knitting hats and blankets for the homeless. But many of us are uncomfortable with receiving. When we are sick and a friend offers to bring dinner, we say, oh, no, 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 we got, no, thank you, thank you, but no. We become so uncomfortable with receiving. How do we cultivate that part of the spiritual life? Christian Wyman, the internationally acclaimed poet, was diagnosed with terminal blood cancer at age 37. He said that one of the ways he learned to receive God's love was to pay attention to the way that his wife was always loving him and forgiving him. And in receiving her love, he began to imagine that there could be a God like that. Now in remission, Christian Wyman has written a new book. And in the book, he writes, you need grace that has nothing to do with your own efforts. For at some point, whether because of disease or despair or exhaustion or loss, you will have no efforts.
left to make. In the summer after my sophomore and junior years of college, I worked at a church in Houston as a summer intern. The program was designed to help college students in Texas discern whether or not ministry might be a fitting choice as a career. So they gave me the opportunity to preach and lead worship and visit the sick in the hospitals, but mostly I spent my time leading the youth group. I took them on mission trips to San Antonio and conferences for youth at TCU. I drove this big, long, brown van across the freeways of Houston to every imaginable field trip. There were two boys in the youth group. They were strong-willed and cantankerous. I tried to connect with them, to reach out to them. I took each of them on coke breaks and tried to understand their stories better, but nothing I tried seemed to calm their restless souls. They continued to act out in ways that were destructive to the youth group. And near the end of the second summer, I was at my wit's end. I came home one night, walked up the stairwell of the house where I was staying, and halfway up the stairs, I just sat down in the middle of the stairway, exhausted. I sat there on the stairs, crying wondering what I had done wrong with those boys, trying to figure out how I had spent two summers and failed. And then it came to me, I couldn't do this. I couldn't be a minister. Well, I had my answer. And then something happened. I can't really explain it, except to say that at that moment, I knew it wasn't me who needed to figure it out. God would be the source of love and grace, and I would only be the container. At that moment of weakness, I discovered God's strength. I suspect that all of us have had a moment or two like that, when we realize that the problem was so much greater than us, completely unsolvable, something we cared passionately about but could not fix. In these moments of vulnerability, no one needs to teach us humility. We simply know it in our bones. We are like infants with nothing. All we can do is receive. All we can do is trust. There is no need to try to be humble. Humility simply comes Besides, if we did good, get really good at humility, we would be defeating Jesus' point. He wants us to know that we do not enter God's holy realm by our own effort, but by God's tender mercy. God waits for the little child in all of us to show up.